Hi, this is Guy Kawasaki, author of Wise Guy, Lessons from a Life, and you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by Forbes as one of 11 smart podcasts that will keep you in the know. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas in order to succeed in the quickly changing field of modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or some other helpful resource that I know of for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. Also, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Blinkist. Blinkist is an app that takes the key insights from the best nonfiction books and distills them into a format that you can read or listen to in just 15 minutes on your smartphone. Several of the books featured on the Marketing Book Podcast are on Blinkist. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer for Marketing Book Podcast listeners where you can sign up for free at Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast. Blinkist is spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. And if you opt for the paid version, you'll get an additional 20% off, but only if you go to Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast, or just click the link at MarketingBookPodcast.com. And now, on with the show. Today, we welcome Guy Kawasaki back to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his latest book, Wise Guy, Lessons from a Life. Guy Kawasaki is the Chief Evangelist of Canva, an online graphic design tool. He is a brand ambassador for Mercedes-Benz and an executive fellow at the Haas School of Business at UC Berkeley. He was the Chief Evangelist of Apple and a trustee of the Wikimedia Foundation. He's also the author of The Art of the Start 2.0, The Art of Social Media, Enchantment, and nine other books. And interesting fact... Guy was named in honor of the famous band leader, Guy Lombardo, a friend of Guy's father. Guy, congratulations on Wise Guy, and welcome back to the Marketing Book Podcast. It's good to be back. Thank you. And I should add that another thing I learned was that your dad was a state senator in uh, Hawaii, where you grew up. Yes, he was. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. So speaking of your dad, I didn't mention this book in your introduction, but let me just say, Guy, that I read... Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and it changed my life. <laughs> I'll tell Robert Kiyosaki you said so. <laughs> oh, wh- what? Do you, wait a minute. What are you saying? Oh, you, di- you didn't write that up. So, we all sound alike. Yeah, that's right. Well, no, in, your, in your book, you joked about how uh, people confuse you uh, with him. But speaking of confusion, you write in the book that one day you were mistaken by some teenage girls for Jackie Chan. Yes. Who is it? that you one day hope Jackie Chan will be mistaken for? Well, obviously me. Yeah. Somebody asked Jackie Chan if he's Guy Kawasaki. Okay, so if there's <laughs> anybody out there listening, uh, perhaps in Hong Kong, and they know Jackie Chan, just you know, ask him if, uh, if, if, he's, if people are coming up to him thinking that he's, he's Guy Kawasaki, because I, I, I bet it happens. But yeah, Guy, you were one of the very first guests on this podcast four years ago when we talked about the art of social media that you co-authored with uh, Peg Fitzpatrick. That was yep. episode six, and this is episode 
215. I just want you to know. Seriously? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, yeah. But I want you to know that you don't have to wait 200 episodes <laughs> to come back on the show. Uh, you, you can come back on the podcast more frequently and, and do that. But, uh, you know, related to the art of social media, Guy, do you realize how hard you've made it for several other authors of social media books that I've passed on? <laughs> Nice folks, what? great book. What do you mean? Well, after your book, I just I didn't feel like I needed to have too many more books about oh, social media. <laughs> you ruined it for them, the guy. Life's a bitch. Yeah, yeah, but it, it was it, it's a terrific book, and uh, I can only imagine it's uh, been uh, very successful. Now I've seen you keynote at some conferences, and I actually got to meet you when you came to speak in my hometown. And you won't remember this, but at <laughs> At the luncheon, I think it was, this was at Old Dominion University in Norfolk, I brought my MacBook with me, and I asked you to autograph it. And, you know, Guy Kawasaki, he's up for anything. You, you turned it over to sign the bottom, and I said, no, 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 I, I want you to sign the cover. And it threw you off, and you looked at me, and you said something like, you realize that will de- decrease the value of this laptop, right? <laughs> And has it? No, no. I've gone around showing it to everybody, and 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 Brad. You know, some people collect signed sports memorabilia. Maybe you do, but I collect autographed marketing and sales books, and I and and I I have that one uh, autographed uh, MacBook. Now, before we get to the book, I have to mention something that longtime listeners to the Marketing Book Podcast will catch on to. You have a Stanford degree. You did your undergraduate at Stanford. And as it turns out, over the last 200 or so episodes, there have been more authors with Stanford degrees on this podcast than any other school. What maybe, is, you, maybe you should check with the registrar. Yeah, well, it just makes me, you know, I, I look at everyone's LinkedIn profile. We don't make a big, I don't really talk about where people went to school, but it seems like there, there, there were just, there must be at least 15, I think, 15 or 20 authors. And it just makes me wonder, like, when you go to Stanford, do you sign a pledge that you will write a marketing or sales book once you graduate? Uh, it's that or we have to donate a building or a chair. Or something. Oh, oh. Well, then I'm happy to help out. Uh, you know, that's great. Well, let me, let me just, I just want to read one uh, excerpt from the book and uh, then we can, we can get into this. You say it the, in the preface, actually. Before you ask or wonder, this is not my autobiography or memoir. It is a compilation of the most enlightening stories of my life. Think personal lessons, not personal history. My stories do not depict epic, tragic, or heroic occurrences because that hasn't been the trajectory of my life. They do not depict a rapid, meteoric rise either. One decision, one failure, hard work, one success. My goal is to educate you, not awe you. From the bottom of my heart, I hope my stories help you live a more joyous, productive, and meaningful life. If Wise Guy succeeds at this, then that's the best story of all. Now, Guy, in the book, there's some... <laughs> Man, that is a great forward. Oh, my God. It is. It is. <laughs> I hope I did it justice by, by reading it. Um, it sounded better than when I wrote it. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, if you need any audio book work done, I'll see if I yeah. can find it. <laughs> Okay. It would be better to come from you, though. So there's there's loads of great life advice in your book, and I may actually get a copy of this for my kids, or at least read in the parts that I think are going to be relevant if they'll pay attention to me. But there's also a lot of really practical tips that I'd like to, to ask you about. But before we do that, 
Let's talk a bit more about Guy Kawasaki. Now, yeah. you've written several books and after, was it 14, 15 now? This is the 15th. Okay. So that's a lot. And you said that after you've written each book, you have vowed that that will probably, you'll probably never write another book. Yep. So, Guy, be honest. This isn't your last book, is it? Uh, I, I say that with such a sigh. I'm considering writing another book already. And this book will be completely unrelated to anything else ever that I've written. This book may be a book about surfing. Oh, terrific. Yeah, yeah. Well, that wouldn't be surprising. You talk so much about surfing and uh, surfing with your daughter and, and how, you, how you discovered that. So that would make a lot of sense, and I think it would be um, pretty, pretty popular. Now, one thing I, I noticed in your book uh, is that your dad always told you all, your, the kids, that they would always have money to buy books. And they didn't, it wasn't a wealthy family when you were, when you were growing up, hardworking. They, they took uh, very good care of you. But um, I found that interesting that he said, well, I mean, did he say there was always money to buy anything else or was it pretty much just books he was going to get you? <laughs> no, it was only books. <laughs> that I recall anyway. No, it was only books. My father was a prodigious reader. Mm. Well, speaking of books, you write that one book can change your life. And I, I agree completely. And in, in your case, it was Brenda Eulen's book, If You Want to Write, yes. which I was not aware of, and now I'm glad I am. Tell us about that book and what impact it had on you. Yes. Brenda Eulen was a writing instructor at the University of Minnesota. And the essence of this book is that you should not listen to the negativity about you know, you can't be a writer, you aren't a writer, you're not trained, you're not educated. And a lot of that negativity is self-doubt. So it's negativity that you're putting upon yourself, mm. which is a little ironic. And so this whole book is about how you need to unshackle yourself. And if you want to write, you write and go for it. So this is a book written for writing students, but it applies to life. So if you want to program, if you want to cook, if you want to make movies, if you want to start a company, if you want to do anything, surf, yeah. If you want to do anything, it applies. And that book changed my life. Terrific. That's great. So moving on, you said that uh, almost every job you ever had came from a connection rather than a job application. What did that Mm -hmm. teach you? (laughs) <laughs> that taught me to get to know a lot of people. There you go. Uh, I mean, literally, there's a part in the book where I, I track every job that I got, okay? And, God, it must have been 10 or 15, but I think I got one or two, you know, with uh, application. Application, application in the sense that you saw an ad or something like that, as opposed to every other job where it was friend of a friend, relative, you know, nepotism, something like that. Mm-hmm. And I can't ever tell you that I had the perfect background for most of the jobs. So uh, particularly the Apple one, because I had no record in computer science or working in the computer business at all. Mm -hmm. So my Apple job I got because of nepotism. It was my classmate from Stanford. And at the time that I started the job, I had a brief exposure to computer software, about six months. But you couldn't fundamentally say I came from the computer business and I had a computer science background. I had a psych background. 
I had a jewelry manufacturing background, and I happened to work for a small software company for about six months before it was acquired and was moved to Atlanta, and I wasn't interested in moving to Atlanta. Mm-hmm. So the story is not as pure as I didn't have any computer background. Well, you had an MBA, is, too. Well, yeah, don't hold that against me. <laughs> I had an MBA, too. But it's closer to the truth to say that you know I, I, I did not have the qualifications to get a job at Apple, education or uh, work experience. It was nepotism. Mm-hmm. So filed under the headline, I guess you never know. Um, yeah. Talk about that one job interview you didn't go on because you thought the commute would be too long. Oh, that one. So, Michael Moritz. You were trying to do the right thing for your family. I mean, don't beat yourself yeah, up, yeah. but uh, yeah. you never know. Michael Moritz of Sequoia calls me up and says he's funded a company and he wants to know if I want to interview for the CEO position. And at the time, I was living in San Francisco with my wife and one child, and she was uh, pregnant with our second child. So she was in beta with our second child. <laughs> and the distance between, or the time, it would take to go from where we were living to where the job was, was roughly an hour each way. So I told Mike Moritz, man, it's too far to drive. I don't see how it can be a business, et cetera, et cetera. And the job was to be the CEO of Yahoo. Now, Yahoo has had some, let's say, interesting times since then, but this would have been way back when. And I figured that that response cost me roughly $2 billion. <laughs> Two billion here, two billion there. Starts yeah, to add up. Yeah, real money. I wouldn't be doing podcast guests anymore. <laughs> well, well, and and so I'm glad you didn't take that job because otherwise we we wouldn't get a chance to to hear you. You'd be, you'd be interviewing Gary V or Seth Godin right now. Oh well, uh, happy to have either on the show. I interviewed <laughs> Seth Godin was the the 200th uh, episode. So oh, yeah, yeah. So when you got your degree from Stanford, you. Th- right that you thought learning would be over and i think a lot of people that get out of school think damn glad glad that's over but yeah. talk about uh, what you discovered instead i discovered that learning is a process it's not an event and the process continues after you are out of formal learning i.e school and so I have continued to learn, sometimes the hard way, but continued to learn uh, since school. And I think that's a very important hindsight that, uh, you know, don't think of education as stopping the day you get out of school. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why they call it commencement ceremony, because that's when it's really <laughs> supposed to, to start. And it's really relevant for so many of the people. Is that right? Is that yeah, why? It's, it's commencement. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Dang. Huh. I um, something. Yeah, there you go. So it's relevant, though, to so many listeners to the to this podcast and other marketing podcasts because a lot of them have been thrust into maybe a marketing role or they're working for a new company or they've just uh, become head of a company or they're, they're, they're trying to learn and, and get up to speed on a topic that you know, has, has changed quite a bit. But I just wanted to quote one other thing from, from the book. You say, learning is a process, not an event. It doesn't end when you complete your formal education. If you've got it made... Risk your self-image and pride by trying something you're not good at. No matter how much you know, you can still learn more. The more you learn, the more you learn and earn. So, uh, I think uh, you learn to uh, surf at a, you know, at middle age, I guess. More than middle. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, let's, you mentioned your jewelry 
working for the jewelers. So when you were getting your MBA at UCLA, you worked for a jewelry business where you worked after you graduated from there as well. Talk about what that taught you about sales. So I worked in a jewelry manufacturer, and the jewelry manufacturer sold to retailers. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't standing in a retail store selling jewels. I sold jewels to the store that sold to the public. And we had several thousand accounts all over the world. And the jewelry business is a very cutthroat business in the sense that it's dealing with commodities. And these commodities are valuable, i.e. gold and diamonds, but they are nonetheless commodities. So, you know, one person's 18 karat gold is another person's 18 karat gold, unless you're dishonest anyway. And so it taught me how to sell about fostering trust, fostering relationships, uh, dealing with people, you know, hand-to-hand combat. And that has been a very, if not the most valuable skill of my life. And I've figured out that fundamentally in life, you're either making something or you're selling something. Mm -hmm. So you better be good at one of those two things. Mm -hmm. So that was probably a good example of where you were, you had to determine pretty quickly how to add value because weren't they, a lot of them probably pretty price-driven? Very price-driven. I mean, they would love to throw your product on a scale and, and just measure out and say, okay, so you have... $100 $100 worth of gold here will give you $110 for the labor and, and design. <laughs> uh-huh. So, you know, if only we could buy computers that way, right? Right, right. <laughs> so what were some of the things that you figured out you had to do in, in, in down in the trenches there? It was hand-to-hand combat. It was fostering trust and relationships and, you know, learning how to smile. It was a lot of simple things. Um following through on your commitments. It, mm-hmm. uh, it's not rocket science, <laughs> and, yet it, and yet it is rare. Yeah, yeah. Just do what you say you're going to do seems to be, sadly, a such concept. a differentiator these days. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's let's talk about Apple. On page 54, there's a picture of uh, a group of employees at the Macintosh division around 1984. And in the front of the employees is Steve Jobs uh, taking a knee, uh, holding up a, a one of the computers. And your caption said that this is the only known instance of Steve Jobs getting on his knees for anyone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and there are several other very, you know, the problem is I read it so carefully. I hope everyone catches, there's there's jokes on every page here, but um, <laughs> but, but you go on to write about the gospel according to Steve. What are some of the top lessons that you learned maybe the hard way at Apple working for Steve Jobs? Well, first lesson I learned is that people can't tell you how to innovate. They can tell you they want a better, faster, cheaper, whatever they already have from you. So if you're an Apple customer in the mid-80s, they wanted a bigger, faster, cheaper Apple II. Nobody said we wanted a Macintosh, which was incompatible with the Apple II, completely different chipset. You know, everything was different. Mm-hmm. So that's one lesson. So that you know, so if if you're not listening to your customers or who do you listen to and that I think you listen to your gut you listen to your vision your hallucinations your delusions whatever it is you just hope you're not the only person with the same hallucinations and delusions and that's why it's so hard yeah. now you can't you can listen to your customers on how to evolve your product or service and that's just as hard a skill but 
it's it's unlikely that someone will come up to you and say, listen, I know I'm buying X from you, but really what I need is Y, and Y is hardly ever related to X. Yeah, and I think that a lot of companies make a mistake of thinking that their their customers are going to tell them what they want when I think what you're describing is deeply understand them, look for insights, and, and then go from there. Well, I'll give you an example. So, you know, if if you're Kodak or Polaroid and you define yourself as we're chemical companies, sometimes we put chemicals on paper, sometimes we put chemicals on film. Well, then you stick to instant photography or film photography. But if you define yourself as, well, you know, what our customers really are getting from us is the ability to preserve memories. Mm -hmm. So if there's another way, a better way to preserve memories, we should embrace that create that jump on that Mm -hmm. but most companies don't think like that we're you know a chemical company and we put chemicals on film and paper Um, we're not in the preservation of memories business right if they had thought that then they would be nikon canon or sony today right right well you know related to that i want to ask you to tell a story that i heard you give at a speech in boston and you talk a bit about it in the book and it's really uh, one that just has resonated with me ever since I first heard it. And it's the story about ice and keeping yeah. things cold. Yeah. So there's three curves to ice. Curve number one was ice harvesting. This is the 1900s, you know, late 1800s, where you go out to a frozen lake or pond, you cut blocks of ice. About 30 years later, the ice harvesters were effectively put out of business by the ice factories. Now you froze water centrally, and the ice man delivered ice to your house. Another 30 or 40 years go by, and now we have refrigerator companies. These are even better because an ice factory is better than a harvester because a factory can freeze water where and when it's warm. It doesn't have to be winter, so it's better than ice harvesting. But a refrigerator company is better than an ice factory because now you had your own personal ice factory in your house. You didn't have to depend on the ice man. But none of the organizations that were ice harvesters became ice factories and none of the ice factories became refrigerator companies because most entities define themselves in terms of what they already do. We harvest frozen lakes and ponds. We freeze water centrally and deliver it in an ice truck. We make a refrigerator. We apply chemicals to paper. We apply chemicals to film. We make typewriters. We make you know cash registers, and that's why very few of us use Kodak, Polaroid, Smith Corona, Remington Rand, ice factories, or ice harvesters today. Because mm-hmm, they didn't really understand what true business they were in. Yes. So they thought they were in the ice business when actually they were in the business of keeping things cold. <laughs> And, and convenience and cleanliness, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I often hear this uh, referred to from an article that Theodore Levitt wrote in the Harvard Business Review like around 1960 called Marketing Myopia. Yeah. And a very famous article, and he yeah. talks about the railroads. They thought they were in the railroad business, but they were actually in the business of getting stuff from point A to point B, and they completely missed out on uh, trucking and uh, mm-hmm. shipping and air cargo and, and all that uh, type of thing. So back to Apple, though, in writing about your days at Apple, you state that people who love your product, who love it, they are a powerful force. 
uh, perhaps more powerful than a lot of people realize. What Talk about that and what benefits do you get and, and why are a lot of companies missing that? So people who love your products and want to spread the good news are called evangelists. Uh, evangelism comes from the word bringing the good news. It's a Greek word. And so I was a Macintosh evangelist and today I'm a Canva evangelist. So these are people who view your product or service as good news. Good news meaning it makes people more creative, more productive, it democratizes computing, it democratizes design. And if you have a product that catalyzes such loyalty and such passion, then you can probably have evangelists who will carry the marketing message forward for you. And Apple is certainly an example of that. And uh, so is Canva. Mm-hmm. So one other thing about your time back at, at Apple that you write about, it might be helpful for the, for the listener, is you, you say, you explain that price and value are not the same thing. What? Yeah. Why are those uh, so often confused, yeah. and how can people better understand the difference? Well, the, the, easiest, the easiest example to understand comes from Apple also, which is no one ever bought a Macintosh iPhone or iPad because it is the cheapest product on the market. Mm-hmm. Never. But why is Apple successful? It's because they may not be the cheapest, but they have very high value. So take a Macintosh, for example. It is more expensive than any other computer, but it requires less service, less support. There used to be, anyway, less viruses. The uh, training is easier. The conversion is easier. All that stuff is easier. So even though it may be more expensive on day one, the list price, if you add in all the benefits and all the savings over the course of a lifetime, it has probably the highest value. Mm-hmm. To add to that, though, you say that value actually isn't enough. I do. <laughs> it's been a long time since I wrote the book. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> you say many products are valuable, yeah. but if your product isn't also unique or differentiated in some way, you have, oh, that. To, you have to compete <laughs> yeah. on price. Yeah, you can yeah, succeed yeah. this way as Dell did, for example, but if you truly want to dent the universe... That was a Steveism, I gather. Mm-hmm. Your product needs to be both unique and valuable. Yes. So this is the proverbial two by two matrix, where on one axis you have the degree of differentiation, the other axis you have the degree of value. And what I'm trying to say is if you have something valuable but not unique, you always have to compete on price. If you have something that is unique but not valuable, you own a market that doesn't exist. If you have something that is unique and not valuable, you're just a total loser. (laughs) (laughs) So the goal is to have something that is unique and valuable. So one example, since we're sticking to Apple for a while, you know, when iPod first came out, it was unique and valuable. It was the only way you could easily buy and legally buy music from a lot of publishers on a device that a mere human could operate. Mm-hmm. So that was a unique set of features, you know, selection of music, inexpensive, legal, with a usable human interface. Uh, that's a unique product, and it was very valuable. People wanted to carry a lot of music, um, more than a cassette tape could carry. Yeah. Well, let's move off of Apple. Yeah. Uh, okay. let, me, let me ask you just a couple other life lessons uh, that you talk about here. Explain for the listener what you mean when you say that your greatest competition is your own self. 
Well, by that, I mean that we're going back to Brenda Eulin for a little bit, that often, and this could be taken positively or negatively, sometimes you are defeating yourself, your, your, your negativity, your doubt. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that's not to say that everybody who's successful has no self-doubt. I, I think that self-doubt actually can be a positive thing. It drives you to work harder. It drives you to question. Uh, it drives you to you know worry. You're not delusional. Um, there are a few politicians right now who could use some self-doubt. <laughs> right. um, but you're talking about almost more defeatism than, than yes. healthy self-doubt. Yeah, so that's one level to overcome this defeatism. The other competition is that you know you're always trying to be better. That yeah, it's kind of the opposite case where you know let let's say that you are in fact the best writer in Podunk University, right? Well, you shouldn't be satisfied. You want to be the best writer in the world. Uh, so you, you need to compete with yourself, not just who you are around. Um, this is the proverbial big fish in a little pond. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, if you're the big fish in a little pond, you should either find a bigger pond or, you know, compete with yourself as the big fish. Mm-hmm. Why do you recommend pursuing joy instead of happiness? And what the heck's the difference? Yeah, <laughs> well, I think that Happiness is this theoretical state where everything is great. An unrealistic state. Yeah, to say the least. So this unrealistic state of bliss, whereas joy is sporadic, right? So there are times, uh, we'll use a surfing analogy now. So if you go out surfing for two hours, there are going to be times where it's pure joy when you actually caught the wave and ride it. Mm. There are going to be, most of the time, you're paddling and it's just a battle and then there's going to be sometimes where you don't catch the wave or you fall off where it's pure you know negative depression <laughs> when you screw up like that mm-hmm. and so to think that you'll be happy for two hours surfing is unrealistic there will be elements of joy and then there are going to be lots of times of despondence, despair, and depression. Paddling, getting wiped out, yeah. Yes, yes. And so the message here is that life is not one long, consistent, happy stretch. There are ups and downs, and the ups are periods of joy. Yes, that's wonderful. It's a lot. Well, you're a parent, so you understand that you know the joy of parenting is very different than the happiness of parenting. Right, and looking back, what do I remember? All the little bits of joy. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't remember all the sleepless nights and, uh, you know, problems and um, <laughs> these short people, you, you know, when you, not when thinking you get, I'm cool. When you get old enough, yeah, at first, when you're first, you're starting off as a parent, you, like, buy all the, um, huh, what are those DVDs? Uh Oh, like parenting DVDs or? Well, no, those two, but the ones that your kids are supposed to watch, you know. So that oh, they can, uh, probably with baby, Mozart baby in them. Okay, yeah. Is it Baby Genius? Or, you know, something like I, that. I didn't I, have that for my kids, but uh, okay, they seem yeah. to have turned out well, but that's because children inherit yeah. their intelligence from their mothers, that's, please. Exactly. <laughs> okay, whatever you say. Um, so, you know, the first child, you you want them to take violin at two and learn a language <laughs> at three, and then at like six they start a not for profit, and at twelve they've won a Nobel Prize, fourteen they've started the next Apple, um, and then as you go along, 
you realize that on any given day, if your kids are not in the hospital or in jail, it's a good day. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? It's a good day. Yeah. It's called gratitude. (laughs) It's called life. (laughs) Yeah. And some folks, you know, the happy ones are the ones that express some gratitude every day. And that's why there's things like the gratitude journal where you wake up in the morning and you write down what you're grateful for. And I, I've heard of studies that show that those kinds of people are happier and they're uh, more successful. Oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Well, so, so It's interesting know. that they say you write that in the morning as opposed to at the end of the day. I think it's both. I, honestly, oh, yeah? Joey Coleman, who you may know, he was on the podcast. He wrote Never Lose a Customer Again, terrific book. And he um, recommended it in the uh, interview. And I bought it and I tried it for a while and, but I just kept being, I kept writing the same thing every day that I was grateful for. So I'm afraid I didn't uh, pro- properly understand it or, or do it. But I tried to incorporate that into my, uh, you know, life recipe. So yeah. Well, yeah. let's let's go on to talk about some of the practical stuff that everybody can use even today. And I want to start with. Uh, Wait a minute! Everything we've discussed so far is practical. And oh, I know. Use. You're right. You're right. I shouldn't say that. But it's like <laughs> we got to have the tips, tactics, and uh, trends and. Uh, there, there were a couple things though that I've been using for a couple years. We've used it for clients, and uh, I wanted to talk about the presentations. But before we talk about ten, twenty, thirty, I wanted you to explain what you mean when you say stories trump adjectives. What I mean there is when you are trying to sell or pitch, people tend to use adjectives that my product is patent-pending, curve-jumping, paradigm-shifting, easy-to-use, beautiful, bug-free, and fast. And state-of-the-art, I think, right? And state-of-the-art. I forgot that. (laughs) Pardon me. And so basically, everybody says the same thing about their product or service. They're all using the same adjectives. Nobody says, I have a dumbass product that's slow, buggy, and hard to use. Everybody uses the same adjectives. And so because everybody uses the same adjectives, nobody's saying anything different. So what I'm advocating is that instead of using adjectives, you try to tell a story, a story of, I'll give you a story. So two people in the University of Western Australia in Perth, uh, Melanie and Cliff, Melanie and Cliff are teaching undergrads how to do graphics using Adobe products, Photoshop and Illustrator. And they find that it's difficult for students. There's, there's too many features. It's too deep a product, and it's very expensive for students. So they think, oh, there must be a better way. So they start Canva. And Canva is an online, you know, cloud-based, very easy to use way to create great graphics. So that's the genesis of Canva because they were teaching students how to create graphics, and they found that the Adobe suite of products were just too complex and difficult. That's the story of Canva. And I think that kind of story is much more powerful than saying we have a fast, easy-to-use, beautiful product that works online. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, who doesn't say that? <laughs> I mean, yeah. Even, even Adobe says that. <laughs> right, right. And the human brain is wired to process stories uh, much better than trying to retain facts. Yes, Yes, and so stores are a very powerful way. Now, you also need to be cognizant of the flip side of this, which is if you're being sold to, you know, one story doesn't make something true. You also need to be able to build resistance to stories that, you know, just because one kid 
quit high school in his sophomore year and started a company and became a billionaire, that's a great, empowering, you know, motivating story. That doesn't mean that everybody should quit high school. Yeah, very true. Well, I mean, the same thing is you know true of athletics. That you know somebody said, okay, so my path out of this is you know, to to get drafted by the NFL or the NBA, and obviously, several hundred people like that succeed every year. But I don't know. Take hockey. I mean, there's probably seven hundred thousand, you know, kids playing hockey at any given moment. Well, there's about a thousand making a true living playing hockey. So, you know, every year a few hundred thousand come out, and every year, you know, a few hundred get a job. So, yes, I can tell you an inspirational story that you know, a kid played hockey from age two and became Wayne Gretzky. But there's only been one Wayne Gretzky. <laughs> uh, there's only been one Michael Jordan or LeBron James. That may not be the statistically valid path for you. Right. And occasionally somebody wins the lottery yeah. and everyone thinks, oh, well, I, I think I could probably do that. And actually, yeah. you probably oh, <laughs> <laughs> you have a better chance of being in the NHL <laughs> statistically yeah. than uh, – than uh, winning the lottery, and I and I'll be a big wave surfer. Yeah, <laughs> right. So you also uh, teach that every presentation should take off like a fighter jet. Explain. Yes. Well, having sat in so many presentations, um, many people believe that they should build up to a climax. That they tell the story of their personal background, you know, they go starting when their ancestors came over on the Mayflower or left South Vietnam in the last helicopter out of the U.S. Embassy or, you know, they go back their entire family history and they're building this up and like 30 minutes later, finally, we find out what the product does and, you know, what the company is all about. And uh, I, I tell people that, you know, think of yourself as an airplane. There's two kinds of airplanes. One is a Boeing 787 or Airbus 380, and it has two miles of runway. And when it finally takes off, everybody says, thank you, God, you know, you once again allowed us to defy gravity. The other kind of airplane is an F-18 taking off from a carrier deck in 150 meters, 150 knots in, you know, one and a half seconds, or it goes into the ocean and you die. And it's a binary. Okay. Yeah, it's kind of a binary thing. So basically, I'm telling you that your pitch should be like an F-18. It should take off like a rocket. And in the first 30 seconds, people should understand what your product does. They shouldn't be wondering, well, so, you know, okay, so back in 1750, uh, this kid's ancestors came over in the Mayflower. You know, thank you very much. Can we like speed it up? Because it's now 2019. <laughs> Yes, yes. Well, let's get to the one that just seems uh, revolutionary, but I've done it, and by golly, it works. It's the 10, 20, 30 rule for presentations, <laughs> yeah. and I really want people to understand this. Okay. So the 10, 20, 30 rule for presentations is that you should have roughly 10 slides in your presentation. The presentation should last roughly 20 minutes, and the smallest font you should have anywhere in it is 30 points. And if you just did these three things, I swear your presentation would be better than 90% of the people in the world. Right. And with 30-point font, you can't put that many words on there. You, it's really hard to turn your slides into an eye chart. 
That's the whole point, yes. <laughs> now, I think there was a, an addendum I may have heard of where you say, okay, well, what if it's a bunch of young people you're presenting to? What if there's some math there where you take the oldest person in the room, divide by yeah. two? Yeah, and uh, that's the minimum font size. Right, right. So I, I guess if you're pitching to eight year, 18-year-olds, you can use a nine-point font. God bless you. Go for it. <laughs> But I still wouldn't recommend it. Yeah, because they're still even if they use a smaller font, they're going to put too much stuff on there, and people want to read the slides. <laughs> uh, if you have an, more of an image, they're going to they're going to listen to you. So, yeah. just want to ask three other quick things that we've already started talking about here in the office. These are all tests. Okay. What is the Wikipedia NPR donation test? The Wikipedia NPR donation test is you provide such great content that people feel a moral obligation to give you money. So that test can be applied to your social media, to your marketing, to your content marketing strategy. And it could generally be applied to your life that you know you do something so good that people feel like they should pay you for it. Right, right. So, like, are because, we creating content or uh, that that people would actually pay us for if we have to ask them a couple times a year? Yeah, and Wikipedia and NPR pull that off. They may be the only two organizations that pull that off, but they pull that off. So, you know, a test for your podcast is: is the podcast so good that? People are willing to give me money if I ask them for it. I'll try that. Why don't you? Okay. <laughs> Go to marketingbookpodcast.com. Send the checks to the address there. Okay. So the next one is the shopping center test. Loved it. Yes. The shopping center test is someone is interviewing at your company. You happen to see that person at a shopping center. The person has not yet seen you. You can either... Make a beeline right to that person and say, hi, how are you? I know you're interviewing at our company. Uh, I hope you'll join us, help us dent the universe, et cetera, et cetera, because you just feel an affinity for this person. Mm -hmm. A second reaction is, well, shopping center isn't that big. If she and I get face-to-face, -face, I'll say hello. The third is I'm going to get in my car and find another shopping center. <laughs> so... My test is when you see someone that you're thinking of recruiting or you are recruiting and that person has not yet seen you in a shopping center, if your reaction isn't to go right over and start talking, you probably shouldn't hire the person. Right. And I saw a life lesson there. Try and be someone who would pass the shopping center test. Well, yeah. Also, good point. Yes. I never thought of it from that side. Yes. Okay. Now, the last one is probably the most powerful one, but nobody seems to do it. And that is the so what test. Yes. The so what test is used primarily for when you're pitching or in a sales presentation where you make a statement and then you pretend there's a person sitting on your shoulder who says, so what? <laughs> for, for example, I tell you that Canva is cloud-based and I think, oh, you know, I said the magic word cloud-based. Everybody understands the advantage of cloud-based. But the little person says to Guy, Guy, so what if Canva is cloud-based? So Guy has to answer the so what. And the so what is, well, Canva is cloud-based. This means that you can access it from any computer with internet access in the world. It also means that it'll work with your Android phone, your iOS device, and your Windows and Macintosh. It means that if your computer is stolen or lost, you still have all your files in the cloud. It means that you don't have to install anything. Um, so it has all these ramifications, but 
you know, you can't assume that just because you utter the magic words cloud-based that everybody understands why it's good to have a cloud-based graphic design system. Absolutely. And it seems like there are companies that could dramatically improve their uh, results if they would just hire somebody to sit in a room and review all the copy they ever produce <laughs> and say, so what? That person, yeah. seriously, that person would pay for themselves. Yeah, oh. they should have a VPSW. Yeah, the so what? <laughs> It's like it's not like a court jester, but it's somebody who's the the devil's advocate sort of person. Yes, yes. So, guy, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? Start surfing as soon as you can. <laughs> <laughs> he's not joking, folks. You should see how he's worked surfing into this. I mean, he enjoys it, but it it it's actually done several other things for him. I love surfing. Yeah, uh, I think that. Maybe the most valuable lesson is, uh, man, it's just so chock full of lessons. How do I pick one? I didn't say this was a fair question. (laughs) My mother had a very valuable lesson is always leave a place cleaner than you found it. Oh, that's that's right. That's right. And so you're a neat freak. uh, I wouldn't. You can ask my wife. There are various opinions about that. Oh, okay. But, um, I'm a neater freak. <laughs> okay. Because I, well, you know what? It's that uh, um, you're comparing yourself to how neat your mom was. <laughs> Stop that guy. Stop that. You're neat. I'm doggone it. Than, I'm neater than Jackie Chan. <laughs> okay. I think Jackie Chan needs to watch out. Yeah, so, yeah. Guy, are there any recent or upcoming books that you uh, recommend or are looking forward to reading? Uh, I'm so bad, so heads down finishing this book. And and you know what? I only read novels, really. Mm-hmm. I never read nonfiction. Well, that, so that's okay. I, I'm a big Lee Child, Jack Reacher fan. Oh, excellent. Yeah. yeah. I, I'll read anything Lee Child writes. Oh, Terrific. Now, that sounds like fun. Yes, and just to, to comment on that, you should have a balanced reading uh, diet out there, folks. <laughs> Guy, how best can listeners learn more about you and this newest book? The book is available you know, almost everywhere, but Amazon is the easiest one. Mm-hmm. And my website is GuyKawasaki.com, but honestly, most people's websites at this point, they're kind of brochureware. So there's not much interaction there. If you really want to want to see what I'm doing personally, it's my Instagram feed. It's a guy Kawasaki. And if you really want to see what I consider important and you know, topical and timely and socially responsible, follow me on LinkedIn where I'm also guy Kawasaki. But a word of warning, I'm very political on LinkedIn. So um <laughs> That's right. You know, <laughs> if you if you think I'm only discussing professional development and evangelism, marketing, and sales on LinkedIn, you're in for a rude awakening. That's right. Well, and you had a lot of interesting things about politics and, and things like that uh, in the book. So, yeah, and you can talk about that and some of the other causes that you, you champion. We'll include links to your site, your LinkedIn profile, your Twitter handle, and your Instagram feed, and all, all the books that you've mentioned on this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And for you, 
dear listener. If you're listening on your smartphone and you subscribe to the Marketing Book Podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast app, all these links can be found by going to this episode on your podcast player and clicking on the show notes link. The name of the book is Wise Guy, Lessons from a Life. The author is Guy Kawasaki. Guy, thank you very much for joining us again on the Marketing Book Podcast. (laughs) I'll see you in another couple hundred podcasts. (laughs) Take care. (laughs) Thanks. Thank you. And that closes the book on episode 215 of the Marketing Book Podcast. For more, check out this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other helpful resource for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. Special thanks to our sponsor, Blinkist. To support the Marketing Book Podcast and start your free Blinkist trial or get 20% off your yearly plan, visit Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast or just click on the link at MarketingBookPodcast.com. And please join us next time as we welcome Paul Cherry to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about the second edition of his best-selling book, Questions That Sell, the powerful process for discovering what your customer really wants. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. This episode was produced by Sean Armstrong.